Well, we're continuing today in our table manners series, and you can see our table is getting a little crowded. Uh, there's only a couple seats left. And remember, the idea for the series is this, is that when we come to Jesus, he invites us into the kingdom, and he describes us as like the banquet of the king. He sits us down at the table, which is wonderful. But inevitably, we are sitting next to people who are very different than us and what they value and how they're motivated and their weaknesses and their sins and all that stuff is very different than us. It's not the same as ours. And we have this bias as human beings that like we define normal as us, like I'm normal. And anyone who's not like me is probably weird or there's something wrong with them. And it makes the table very complicated sometimes. And I don't know if you've noticed this church thing that we do or the kingdom of God, it can get really complicated. You, if you've been with us these last few weeks and you know some of these biblical characters that we've talked about, you can guess there's going to be a little bit of conflict at this dinner party, right? So there's going to be some heated discussions and some issues to work through. So what we really want to do what we want to be about as a church is we want to understand who we are. We want to uh, understand who other people are so that we can discover how God has made us different in a ways that should fit together, not just come into conflict with each other. So that's what this series is about. I want to introduce you to a, a character today uh, who some of you are going to really relate to, and maybe the rest of you are going to be uh, kind of confused and, and frustrated by this guy. But hopefully at the end of the day, we'll see just how important he is to the kingdom of God. You may remember a few weeks ago, Thomas shared a quote by the great theologian Augustine. He said this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Now, what Augustine is challenging us to do is to get past our enormous capacity for self-deception and really understand who God has made us to be so that we can grow and be formed into the image of Christ. Uh, there's, uh, what God has to do really to do that is he has to kind of hold up a mirror to us because most of us don't realize automatically who we are. And so God has all these great things that can be mirrors like the Enneagram is something we've talked about a lot, Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders. Some of these things can be great mirrors to reveal things to ourself. I've discovered a new great mirror. I have it right here. This is my high school yearbook. Um, it is, I was looking through this earlier this week, and it, there are some fascinating pictures in this yearbook. I am not going to show you any of these pictures. That's for another sermon. But what I am going to show you is this. I don't know if your yearbook has the same sort of thing. This is where all of my classmates would write little notes to me, and it's all the typical stuff you'd expect, like stay cool, have a great summer, never change, all those sorts of things that we write when we're in high school and we think they sound good. Uh, but... As I was reading through this, I discovered a theme that disturbed me, right? Multiple people wrote stuff like this. Like, for instance, somebody wrote, I enjoyed all our philosophical debates in Bible class. Not too bad. But then I read another person who wrote, I had fun arguing with you about theology and politics. <laughs> another person wrote, you're going to make a great lawyer one day because you're so good at arguing. There were dozens of comments like this in my yearbook, and I did not have this awareness when I was in high school. I was blind to this, but apparently I was kind of a jerk. <laughs> I did not know. Um, I had no idea. And I started thinking about this. Why was I like that? I, th I don't think I'm still like that. 
That was the part where somebody shouts out, no, you're nothing like that, but it's, it's all right. <laughs> Lord, grant that I may know myself, that I may know thee. And I, I started thinking about why was I like that? Here's what I've concluded, and it directly relates to the character that we're going to look at today. There was a time in my life where I was much more comfortable in the world of ideas and thoughts and knowledge than I was in the world of feelings and relationships. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not today the most emotionally connected human on the planet, uh, but apparently I used to be much, much worse, and I would live in my mind. My focus was on figuring out stuff and intellectual ideas and debating that sort of stuff. I was more comfortable in an intellectual debate than I was with emotional connection. Can anyone relate to that? I think that is the issue that was true of this character we're going to look at. I look back at myself in high school and I realize I lived in my head. And I think that is true of the character we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 3. I want to introduce you to the character of Nicodemus, all right? Nicodemus, we're going to add him to the table. And I think one of the defining characteristics of his life is he lived in his head. I don't think he really cares which seat he sits at. That's not really his thing. Um, but Nicodemus was a fascinating character. If you recognize John 3, uh, you'll, you'll note that it contains like the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. This is a verse that has appeared at every football game ever played. Um, and we kind of teach that verse to our kids. It's like the first verse that they learn. We treat it like the consummate verse about salvation, like it just simplifies everything about salvation. And it kind of does, but we need to note this. It happened in a conversation where Jesus says it to this man, Nicodemus. And in that conversation, Nicodemus walks away frustrated and a little confused. It wasn't simple to him at all. It, he struggled with what Jesus said. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start in verse 1, and let me introduce you to this character. John 3, verse 1, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So we learn from this, Nicodemus is a prominent teacher in Jerusalem. At the time, there were two major religious groups in Jerusalem. There were the Pharisees, which is what Nicodemus was. There were the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees controlled the temple. They typically were a little bit more liberal. They were a little bit more accommodating to Rome. And so if you turn back a page to John 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the table and drives a bunch of people out, the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was one, were kind of sitting there watching that saying, hey, this guy's all right. Look at what he's doing to this. Sadducees, who they hated, right? The Pharisees were the more conservative of the two groups. And it says Nicodemus was a, a, a prominent teacher. He was on the Jewish ruling council. These were the people who determined what was true. They stewarded the words of God. That was the identity that they embraced. And so they defined what was the correct interpretation of the Torah and all that stuff. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he mentions these miracles, and there's a reason for that. It would have been traditional for the Pharisees as a group to not accept any new teaching or new interpretation of the Torah unless it was also accompanied by miracles that validated the teaching. And so he says right off the bat, Jesus, I've seen these miracles. They are legitimate. And it's leading to this conversation where he's going to ask, so what is your teaching? What is your new interpretation of the law? Nicodemus is here to evaluate the message of Jesus. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 3, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What I love about Jesus, one of the many things, is he never panders, right? He has all these people who come to him and they have expectations and things they want for him. And he never just gives people what they want, especially people like this. Nicodemus, not a bad guy, but you will note there's a little bit of arrogance in what he is doing. Now, he probably doesn't believe at this point Jesus is the Son of God, but he is coming to the Son of God as the arbiter of his message. I'm going to conclude if this is a message that we should accept. That is Nicodemus' approach. Jesus sees that, and instead of playing ball, instead of saying, well, let me just tell you what I'm trying to be about here, Jesus hits him with this statement that for a logical guy like Nicodemus who lives in his mind, he just cannot wrap his head around it. Look at verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I hope he's being sarcastic there because it seems like a really crazy thing to say. Obviously, Jesus is using a metaphor, but this is a guy who lives, understand, in this world of knowledge and logic and reason. He is a guy who is obsessed with fitting things together in the scriptures, and Jesus knows that about him, and instead of giving him what he wants, he just like, just like blows his mind with this statement about being born again, and he wrestles. Let me pause here. This is one of the big lessons for us about the kingdom of God and being a part of it, right? Uh, God loves us as we are. He made us to be a certain way, and he loves that about us. But God also wants to stretch each one of us beyond what feels natural and comfortable for us. Like, we know this about God, right? Jesus knew Nicodemus was logical, so he says something to him illogical because he wants to stretch him. He wants to make him a more complete person. And this is what we need to understand about being at this table and being a part of God's kingdom. God did not bring us to the table so we could have our way, all right? Now, we're talking about how God made us, and you might say, yes, he did make me that way. That's how I'm going to be forever. That's not why God brought you to the table, just so you could have your way and be comfortable in who you are for the rest of your life. There's a purpose to this table that it is intended to stretch us. It's intended to stretch us beyond what is natural. And just like Nicodemus does, he kind of resists that stretching. All of us resist it because it's uncomfortable to be stretched. If you don't know this already, though, I will tell you, um, our comfort is not super high on God's priority list, right? Like, like high on his priority list is that Christ is formed in us. High on his priority list is that we let go of our earthly identities and find our identity in him and his kingdom. High on his priority list is that we join his work of redemption in the world. And all three of those things exist beyond my comfort zone. I don't know about you. But God is always stretching me out there so that I'll find my identity in him, so that I'll be able to sit at the table with others, so that I'll join his work in the world. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with this guy, Nicodemus. He wants Nicodemus to have a faith bigger than what his logic can contain. And so he's stretching him. Nicodemus reacts, how can somebody be born again? This is crazy. And Jesus responds, and he doubles down. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus says, yeah, you heard me right. You must be spiritually reborn. This kingdom of God stuff I'm talking about, it is not about a small adjustment in your life. It is about being made totally new. That's what Jesus is bringing. And I think sometimes the way we talk about it, we reduce it. We make the gospel like it's, a, it's about a transaction where we get the debt of our sins canceled, and that's great. Now, that is a part of it, but the gospel is so much bigger than that. The gospel fundamentally is about transformation where we are transformed into the person that we were always destined and created to be. And Jesus says, that is what I'm bringing. And he uses the example of the wind. He says, Nicodemus, you don't even understand how the wind works. Now, I realize we do now, but Nicodemus at the time, he had no idea. And Jesus says, you don't even understand the wind, yet you feel it, you see it, you trust it. The kingdom of God is going to be like that. There's going to be pieces of this thing that you may not be able to fit into your rational system but you're going to see it, and I want you to trust it. That's what Jesus says. Look at how Nicodemus replies, verse 9. How can this be? How can this be? Now, notice what he's asking as an explanation. He's asking this question. I, it doesn't make sense, Jesus. Make it make sense. That's the cry of his heart. Jesus responds, and I'm just going to read a good portion of this response. Your Israel's teacher said, Jesus, do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then here it is at this point in the conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I'm going to pause there. Jesus goes on. It's all really good. But notice what he's saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, listen, I am here and something is happening through me that is not going to fit perfectly into your rational systematic approach. The box that you've made, this is outside of that. And the fact that it's outside of the box that you've made is part of the evidence that it's from God. Because if it was from God, you would expect it to be beyond what we humans could come up with, right? Now, first of all, can we just observe like just the absolute brilliance of Jesus, the conversationalist? Like, I don't know where this was, but Nicodemus comes to him, and he's like, I want to talk to this guy. And Jesus, like, he's just next level in the way that he engaged with people. He sees Nicodemus's heart, and he just turns it and gives him the thing that he needs most, even though it's not the thing that he wants. But let's consider this guy, Nicodemus. 
Some of us are Nicodemus. That's how we approach God, the way he approaches Jesus. Um, all of us, I would say, know a Nicodemus. I think uh, using the Enneagram, if you're up to date on that, I think, uh, I'm going to speculate, I think Nicodemus was maybe an Enneagram 5. That's my theory. I think he was the sort of person who generally believed that thoughts and knowledge and information was more reliable than stuff like feelings and emotions and faith and miracles and all that stuff. I think he tended to live inside of his mind, and that's how he approaches Jesus. Now, I'm not an Enneagram 5, but I can relate to it. If you're familiar with the Enneagram thing, there are connections between numbers, and my number 7 um, is connected to 5. So I relate to this because people wired like Nicodemus, they tend to stand back and observe things, and they tend to think the world can be figured out, and it should be figured out. Like, the, we should do that. We, let's figure it out. And that's why I think the question that Nicodemus asks is the burning question of people like him. How can this be? And it drives him. How can this be? Let's understand this. Let's figure this out. Let's become competent in this issue. What I think is really amazing about Jesus in the gospel, um, it's amazing how we're all different, but he meets all of us where we live, Right? Like some of us, we are all heart. Um, and that's just like what drives us in life. We just feel our way through lives. Uh, and it, we read the Gospels and Jesus, like we see his compassion. We see the way that he notices people that nobody else saw. And it just moves our heart. And we're like, surely he is the one. Others of us aren't driven by our heart. We're a little bit more intuitive in life. And we maybe don't know how we know things. We just kind of have a gut feeling and our gut is often right. And we read Jesus, and we look at Jesus' life, and there's just something right about him. Like the, the way that he behaves, the, who he seems to be, it just resonates with us on a deep level that we maybe can't even explain. He's just right. Others of us, though, are like Nicodemus, and we are led through life by our minds, right? And for us, it is, it's Jesus' message that is so deeply resonant with us. Like we see how the gospel makes everything fit together, both our experience in life, in the Bible, and all of this stuff. And, and there's just something about the message that is so deeply resonant and compelling with us. Now here's what we see. While Jesus surely meets each of us right where we are and he connects to us in ways that speak deeply with, uh, to, our, to us. I think that's what's happening with Nicodemus. Like you get this picture that Nicodemus had been listening to Jesus. That's why he's there. There's like something in his mind. He's like, I, there's something to this. I want to hear more about it. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the compassion. It was the message. It's almost like he shows up and he's got his whiteboard and his Excel spreadsheet. And he's like, let's diagram it, you know. Um, this is the important thing to note, though. While Jesus meets us where we are, he doesn't want to leave us there. He meets us surely where we are, how we see the world. But he, he has no interest in leaving us there. Because like all of these characters, and certainly like Nicodemus, uh, his best quality was often his biggest weakness, I bet. Isn't that true of all of us? And Nicodemus is a guy, he wants to understand things, figure things out. That's great. But he comes up against the Son of God who wants him to have trust and faith beyond his understanding. And that's a struggle. Let's consider if we're sitting at a table with someone like Nicodemus. And, and by the way, you are. There's some great people wired this way at our church. 
Nicodemus is always trying to understand and figure out the world, which is great. He's, he's kind of fun because there's a curiosity to this guy that you kind of sense off the page. But sometimes a Nicodemus might withdraw a little bit because he's trying to figure something out, and he might get frustrated if he can't. Uh, Nicodemus is a guy who's going to have incredible insights to theology and to Scripture because they're always thinking about this stuff, and his mind was wired by God to figure out complex problems. But Nicodemus is going to have some struggles maybe to figure out emotions and hearts. It's not going to be as simple for him. He is going to be the guy at the table where if like something happens, uh, like he'll look at Martha and he'll be like, why are you crying? I, what happened? I, don't, I missed it, you know? There's all these emotions. What happened? Um, because he won't know. Sometimes, uh, sometimes emotions are mysterious to him. Like, if you want to frustrate Nicodemus, then use a lot of phrases like this. I just sense the Lord is saying there is space for our heart, right? <laughs> now, like some of you, like you're tearing up right now because that's what you long to hear is a space for my heart. Oh, my gosh. But every Nicodemus in the room did the same thing. They made a face like, that makes no sense. Space for your heart is right there. Um, <laughs> I was, I was talking to a guy I know who's an Enneagram 5, and I used that phrase with him. I was like, what do you think about this? And he said, oh, I hate that. And I'm like, well, why? Tell me more. He said, it's just so squishy, right? It's just so squishy. I don't, I hate it. And I, like, isn't this what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus? Be born again. That's just so squishy. How do you, I, I don't even know how to do that. What do I do with that? That's Nicodemus. Um, I think what Nicodemus needs on his journey, you see a little bit in what Jesus gives him. Um, I'd frame it maybe this way. If you are a Nicodemus, you need to realize God created you to be competent, to be knowledgeable, to be intelligent. But to grow, you have to learn to trust. You have to learn to receive love when you don't understand and to trust God even when you're not sure. That's where Jesus takes him. He's got to learn to press into this relationship even when he doesn't understand. Um, I, I, my sense is, and maybe this is unfair, but my sense is Nicodemus was probably the sort of guy who would hide his emotions behind his intellect. And he'd always bring his intellect to the table, but he needed to know there was space for his emotions. And I think that's why Jesus took him right away to a place where his intellect failed. Here's a life verse that maybe you could have if you were a Nicodemus. It's actually, it would work for most of us, but it's from Mark 12. It's the great commandment. Um, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see how there's something in there for all of us? Nicodemus is like, all your mind, check. I'm doing that. I am loving God with all my mind. It's the heart and the soul and the strength that may be the issue for someone who is Nicodemus. Let me give you a spiritual discipline to practice. If you're wired in this way, you tend to be led by your mind. Uh, I think one of the most sp important spiritual disciplines you could engage in uh, is sharing in community. That may not be the one you want. You may rather study something, or you may rather go to a Bible study where you can share your ideas. But I actually think this is going to be the thing that turns someone wired like Nicodemus into a whole person. And I don't mean uh, just sharing what you think. I mean specifically, let me give you three things. It is sharing your feelings, it is sharing your fears, and it is sharing your hopes. 
That's what I mean by sharing in community. If you're wired like Nicodemus, those three things might even be hard for you to even know. You might say, I don't know what I feel. I know what I think, but I'm not sure what I feel. Um, here's maybe a suggestion. If you're wired in this way, find someone who's not. Find someone who's like really in, just good at sharing their feelings. Um, like just naturally they live from their heart. Find someone like that and ask them to teach you. Just say, hey, I'm not real good at this. Could you just help me figure out how to do this? And they'll ask you a whole bunch of questions and it'll be frustrating, but it'll be glorious. Now, I, I've grown immensely in this in my life from like mind to heart connection and actually being a little bit more of a whole person because I found someone like that who just, she's always living from her heart and I married her. And that was really convenient because I've learned so much about how to live from my heart just by being married to someone who does. Um, Here's what we have to trust, though. If you are a Nicodemus, you have to trust this. Jesus loves your mind. He does. Your, the questions that you ask that you're like, I don't see anyone else asking questions like this. Jesus loves that about you. He created you that way. But he wants you to be a whole person, not just a mind. And you have to trust and connect to those heart issues to do that. That's why I think Jesus brings people like this to the table. Because the kingdom of God, we really need Nicodemus-type people. We need people who think at this level. But you know what? Nicodemus really needs the kingdom, doesn't he? He needs people who will stretch him beyond that natural thing. You know, something that's fascinating uh, when you read this story about Nicodemus is his story doesn't actually end there in the Bible. Um, This is John 3. He appears a couple more times in the book of John And then right at the end of the book, so Jesus has died on the cross and everyone has scattered, everyone has fled because they're afraid and they're disillusioned and everyone has abandoned Jesus. But who shows up? Nicodemus. He shows up and he claims the body and he prepares it for burial. And it's, it is such a heartwarming picture. This great thinker does this act that is beautiful and tender. And for a guy in his position, incredibly risky. This is an act is all heart done by this man who's a great thinker. It's like he's a new man. It's like he's been reborn. I think that's where I want to close today. Um, I I just want to close with this gospel that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. This is as good a place as any to talk about it. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Here's what I want us all to realize in this room. Um, Jesus wants to transform your life. Like, I know we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no, what he's offering is rebirth. That's what he's offering to us. He's not offering spiritual advice. He's not offering wise sayings and wise teaching. He's not just trying to get you out of hell and into heaven so that one day you don't have to worry about that. He is offering rebirth. He's offering this opportunity to become the version of yourself that you were always destined and created to be. And it's bigger than just what comes naturally to you. It stretches you a little bit beyond that. And that is the sort of rebirth that he is bringing to the table. And I know there's an aspect of that that's not like rational, like we can't just logic our way there. It's not an equation. Like it requires faith. It requires a belief in something unseen. Faith that Jesus, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, actually is God. 
And then when we think about God who exists beyond time and outside of our universe, that like we want to know what he's like. He is everything that Jesus is. And that's not a, something you get to through logic. There is a faith aspect of that. It is belief beyond our sight. And this is why Jesus says, whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. I don't know what you believe about Jesus but when we say believe in Jesus, when we say have faith, when we say be born again, this is all we're really talking about. It means believing that he loves you. Believing that his love for you, in fact, has nothing to do with how good you are. That he just loves you. It means believing that he came for you. That he literally left heaven because he would stop at nothing to have you in his life. It means believing that this voice of shame and of condemnation that we heap on ourselves and other people heap on us, is believing that that voice is not Jesus. And lastly, I'd say it's just believing that he is for you, that he's always been for you, he's not against you. He's made a way for you to share in his life forever. Do you believe that? I mean, that's faith. I, I would maybe summarize it with this statement. I made this one up, but this is how I would say it. I believe my hope for transformation and rebirth is in Jesus alone. Not in me, not in my mind, not in my ability to figure it out, but in Jesus alone. That's what he's getting at with Nicodemus, and that is the sort of faith that he wants for each of us. That's not something we just declare once and move on because we have eternal life, yay. No, no, that is a statement that we put faith in daily. You know, I look around this room. Um, if some of us in this room have put faith in that statement for literally thousands of days. Some of you in this room, you may have never put faith in that statement. And if you did, it would be for the first time today. What's true of all of us, whether it's been thousands of days or whether you've never put faith in Jesus, is none of us understand it all. Our understanding is limited. And so when we declare a statement like that, that's why we call it faith. This is what Jesus is asking us to trust, to take the risk and have faith. I wonder if we could do something as a community today. We don't do this a lot, but I just thought it'd be a good time to do it. Um, if that is what you put your faith in, and whether you're doing that for the first time today or you've done it thousands of times, if that is what your heart believes, could we just say that together? And as a community, could we say, God, we are taking this risk beyond just what we can understand to trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and declare this together. Would you say this with me if this is the prayer of your heart? I believe my hope for transformation and rebirth is in Jesus alone. That's pretty good. Let's say it with feeling. I believe my hope for transformation and rebirth is in Jesus alone. Let me just say it one more time. In our heart of hearts, is this our belief? I believe my hope for transformation and rebirth is in Jesus alone. Amen. That's believing in Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. This is the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like that. Gosh, that's an exciting moment. Like all sorts of cool stuff happens in that moment. God comes really close to us who are just starting out in the faith. 
Now, normally churches, uh, they make people who pray that for the first time, like come down front. That's why they call it an altar call. Or uh, they make them stand up or raise a hand. Um, and we're not going to do any of that stuff. We're a little bit different as a church. I want to do something else. I want to just say this. If you are just starting out and you're like saying, I'm trying to put my faith in Jesus, can I just say the journey with Jesus is the most transforming thing you will ever experience. And instead of making you do something, I want to give you something. I want to give you the single greatest thing that I could give you for this journey with Jesus. And it's the thing I believe Nicodemus ultimately needed. It is the gift of community. And so instead of making you come down front um, or stand up, I'm going to make some of those people who have been praying this prayer for thousands of days stand up. So if you are a pastor or an elder, or if you are married to a pastor or an elder, would you stand up? All right. If you are a small group leader or a teacher or a marriage coach, would you stand up? I forgot, if you're on staff with us or if you've ever been on staff with us, would you stand up? Um, Here's what I want to say. We could probably get more people up. Shorties, you guys should stand up. Tates, stand up. Come on, Tates. These people are hating me right now. Here's what I want to say. All these people who are standing up, I know uh, them. Um, There's plenty of people like this at our church, but this is what I'll tell you about these people who are standing up. They know stuff about journeying with Jesus. They know stuff about journeying with Jesus, and they don't have it all figured out. They can't put it all together for you, so there's never any questions that you have, but they know stuff about journeying with Jesus, and they're all humble of heart. That's why they're all uh, really upset with me right now, but they're going to forgive me because they love Jesus. Um, but they know stuff about journeying with Jesus and they would love to talk to you if you are just starting out on this journey. And so here's what I want you to do. We're gonna sing a song and then the service is gonna end and just like lock one of these people's faces in your mind and tap them on the shoulder at some point today and say, hey, I am just starting out on this journey with Jesus. Could we talk? And then make them buy you lunch or coffee and bring me the receipt, I'll pay for it. But make them buy you lunch or coffee and just sit across from them and say, hey, will you just tell me what do I need to know? Tell me about journeying with Jesus. I'm just getting started. What should I know? And just listen and interact and build a friendship around community. What it means to be a church is not that we have this stuff all figured out, but it's that we sit at this table together and we're learning from each other and we're learning to put faith daily in the Jesus who is our hope of transformation. And we walk into that as a community and these people would be great people to talk to. Let's let him off the hook a little bit. Why don't we all stand up? And I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we just confess. We believe that you love us. We believe that you gave yourself for us. We believe that we stand before you not condemned despite all the stuff that we've done, but we stand before you redeemed and saved we have eternal life with you and we put our full trust and faith in you is our hope for rebirth. Amen.